This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Maybe uh, some of you have heard the, the term verb. Hermetic philosophy, familiar, or hermeticism. Um, Technically, it uh, refers to a particular collection of uh, documents but it's used much more broadly also. And um, one of the uh, principles uh, of um, Hermeticism is uh, summed up in the the expression, uh, as above, so below, you heard that one? Uh, so, um, uh, that's the, the same notion that is expressed in the statement that um, the human is the image and likeness of the divine. So, I you know, I think probably all of you have heard that at least once. And in the uh, the uh, traditions of Orthodox, so-called Orthodox Christianity, um, uh, they're they're fond of uh, one of the early uh, Christian. Uh, theologians who who said uh, um, God became man or became human so that humans can become God. Uh, They don't like that so much in Western Christianity. It makes them uncomfortable. But uh, so-called Orthodox Christianity has a much, um, you might say, uh, a more mystical outlook. So they don't mind saying stuff like that. But uh, in uh, the traditions of um, Hermetic philosophy, uh, there's uh, they say there's another. Uh, level. So there's as above, so below. But um, uh, deeper initiations uh, reveals that there's another expression, which is as below, so above. 
which is um, uh, that's uh, considerably more daring, if you like, and radical to suggest that something about as we are is reflected above in the divine realm, not just the other way around. Uh, in, um, I think, uh, chapter 28 of uh, Genesis, the, uh, the Christian Bible or the, uh, the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew collection of scriptures, um, there's an expression that uh, people tend to kind of skip over just, you know, in the reading. It says something like, um, and uh, usually the translation is, and the Lord was standing by Jacob. But if you actually, if you look at the Hebrew, it turns out that that's not quite accurate. And there are other meanings uh, of that verb, which I won't try to duplicate, but the, the uh, verb also has um, uh, maybe, maybe even more significant meanings. For instance, it actually can mean was leaning on. So this verse says, the Lord was leaning on Jacob. And the sense of it is, was depending on Jacob. So not only was the Lord kind of, uh, you know, strengthening Jacob, Jacob was strengthening the Lord. And this reflects that uh, back and forth, you know, this uh, kind of uh, flipping trapdoor in hermetic philosophy, revealing uh, uh, kind of continuing depths of our life and our experience that uh, mostly we forget about. And so for some reason in uh, 18th century Europe, um, I don't know why, uh, uh, Jewish communities started picking up on this stuff. And um, I guess in the mid 1700s or so, Have you heard of the Baal Shem Tov? You know that, that name? Um, that's, that's actually a, uh, it's not a name, it's a, uh, more like a, a nickname. Uh, and I forget the gentleman's actual name. But anyway, he was uh, the kind of the originator of what came to be called Hasidism. 
which of course still exists today in various forms. And uh, his, um, his disciple was um, another guy whose name, I don't think I remember, but whose nickname, he was known as the Magid of Meserich. And he, uh, he died in like 1772 or something like that. And he, as, as the Baal Shem Tov's disciple, he took a lot of, of those teachings and uh, elaborated on them uh, in a very eloquent way. And as, as you may know, in Hasidism, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, inner experience. And um, uh, so uh, this, this gentleman's philosophy had quite an impact uh, on the, the communities that had begin, begun to discover uh, Hasidism and the approach where um, the observance of the Jewish law was not purely, you know, to check the boxes. <clears throat> but the point was <clears throat> that uh, living in a certain way has an impact on one's inner life. And I, I would imagine all of you, all of us here today would uh, agree with that, would have, have seen that for ourselves. And um, at some point in, uh, towards the end of his life, the great uh, Carl Jung uh, came across the uh, teachings of uh, the Magad of Meserich and was, was heard to say at his uh, 80th birthday party, this guy uh, anticipated my psychology, which is pretty interesting that he would say that. And uh, I mention this because uh, among other things today, my uh, 70th birthday celebration is going to happen. So y'all are invited and we have cake to share. Uh, first, we want to, we want to um, pay our respects to Isan uh, in his, his monthly memorial service, which as you know, is very brief. And we hope you'll join us for that too. Um, Anyway, this, this teaching that uh, something about the human person reflects up in the divine, not just the other way around, is, is kind of compelling. And if you look into it, you might find, as I did, uh, echoes of our own teaching. For instance, in uh, Buddha's 
no, sorry, but yeah, kind of Dogen Zenji's, or if you like Buddha's essay, only a Buddha and a Buddha. Uh, in, in that essay, a Dogen uh, takes a famous quote from the Lotus Sutra and elaborates on it in his inimitable style. The Lotus Sutra says, only a Buddha and a Buddha exhaust the manifold aspects of reality. And uh, some people, you know, uh, I think would be inclined to, to see that as, oh yeah, that's like, you know, like two Buddhas up there in the heavens doing their cool thing. While down here, we're just, you know, we're still struggling in the mud. But that's not what that means. Uh, only Buddha and Buddha, only Buddha and Buddha is us, is we ourselves. We, it is we who exhaust the manifold features of reality in our, our human world. <clears throat> and the, uh, what's, what's sad is how uh, regularly that gets forgotten. In our modern culture, if you like, it's difficult to see uh, how uh, how people arrange their lives so that they are reminded of only Buddha and a Buddha, or as below, so above. in the orthodox observance of Judaism, or for that matter in Islam, or for that matter in Hinduism, or in uh, various forms of Christianity, uh, life is uh, constructed in such a way that there is a, there's this constant reminder that are that the naive understanding of the world is insufficient and inaccurate. And even the forms of, if you like, uh, uh, Abrahamic religion that rely very heavily on um, our dependence upon the divine are stopping short of uh, the actual richness of the teaching of Christianity, which is, you know, the divine is leaning on us too. And that means how we live makes a tremendous difference. 
we we should we should live as though that were the case as though the divine reflects down and up and most of us need to or i don't know i don't know about most of us but i need to arrange my life in such a way that routine observances become a reminder of the way things actually are, of Buddha and Buddha. That, that Buddha and Buddha is not simply a model of you know, uh, divine goings-on off in the Western paradise, but is a model of our conversations, a model of human interaction. And what a tremendous difference it would make to remember that and act that way. So the um, the uh, the Hasidim are uh, uh, very inspired by what nowadays is called the Kabbalah, which is an esoteric tradition within Judaism. And um, uh, here we are in the twenty first century. So there's, there's been plenty of time for there to be a lot of elaboration. Some of that's maybe you know, not that helpful, but there are now quite a lot of, uh, a lot of philosophy and a lot of systematization of one sort or another of the so-called Kabbalistic teachings. And it has even penetrated into popular culture. So certain media figures who's really into kabbalah i forget madonna, madonna is really in, and, and she's not alone there are some other folks too and um you know it's uh that's okay it's a question how um how uh, genuine and deep is their grasp of what they are putatively studying Within uh, the the Jewish world, uh, one is is actually uh, warned against studying Kabbalah before one's life is actually quite uh, settled. And one's uh, you know spirit is is quite stable. So there's a unfortunately a kind of um, a, um, there's a gender bias towards the male there, which I don't think you know, we need to take seriously. But like uh, in the traditional view, women were not allowed to study Kabbalah. So fortunately, that's no longer the case. And, but, and men should be married and have their family started and so forth. Because the potential is there for... Uh, for 
people to be affected by these teachings in a way that's not that helpful. So hence the emphasis on a, um, a degree of stability in one's life. Before one starts to study the meaning of, you know, what does it mean that, that God leans on us, depends on us? What could that possibly be? And studying those teachings in, incorporates uh, some uh, intense meditative practices also, which is familiar to us. So this is just one more example of uh, what uh, I see as humanity's universal inheritance of these teachings and for which I find evidence no matter where you go in the world, you can find this. And I suppose that makes me uh, one of the, um, what are they called? Perennialists, the perennial philosophy. Aldous Huxley and others would have decided there is a perennial human philosophy, the foundations of life and consciousness and behavior that is universally shared. And um, yeah, I think, yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, others raise theological arguments as to why that cannot be so, but I'm not so interested in that. So the perennial philosophy reflects most fundamentally and deeply the human heart and its uh, mysterious relationship with what we might call the divine. Which is amply present in our so-called ordinary world. You are familiar with such teachings as uh, form is not other than emptiness, emptiness not other than form. This is yet another reflection of these uh, profound truths. And to live in such a way that reflects the, uh, the uh, power of those truths is transformative. And all of us who are engaged in living in a particular way, that is uh, in tune with these profound truths, um, find that we have a lot in common with each other. So I don't know. I uh, I find that 
tremendously encouraging and, and uh, exciting and wonderful. You, you probably heard that the, uh, the great Buddhist scholar and translator, Thomas Clearly, uh, passed away recently. And um, he also was of this opinion. And this led to his wide-ranging interests and, and uh, uh, his... Uh, his study of uh, not just uh, Chinese, but um, I don't know, Arabic and I don't know, old Irish and Persian and, uh, and in, in his studies, he kept discovering these, uh, this, this somehow there's the same heart beating you know, in all of these teachings. So we wish him well on his journey. So I don't know, uh, maybe some of you have some opinion you'd like to share or contrary point of view. Yes. Um, you, you talked about, you mentioned, and heard it elsewhere, of course, to focus on digging one deep hole as opposed to a lot of shallow holes. Yeah. And as a perennialist, um, which I uh, feel, as a referring to you as a perennialist, but I have to say I also, um, uh, feel that that is our feel of an affinity for that. Mm -hmm. What would you say to about that pull to step away from your deepening hole to um, follow the lure of big of following yeah. the other? Do you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. Well, um. <clears throat> Sorry. You could, you could, huh? I would say in the context yeah. of my impulse to try to sort of air out my own experience of mm -hmm. Christianity mm -hmm. and get a better sense of it. Yeah. Well, um, it's tempting for me to say there is a point at which the hole is deep enough. And that's kind of like, that's the point at which it's safe is a little too dramatic, but it, the point at which it's constructive to study Kabbalah. That is, the hole is deep enough. There is some stability is established, some uh, certainty about one's person, if you like. Um, such that one is not easily, you know, thrown off balance by encountering, I don't know, 
this or that teaching or this or that experience or what have you. There is some stability that I think is inherent. And that once, uh, once that stability is um, discovered, if you like, then other holes can be dug and it's not a waste of time or energy. I guess I would say something like that. Yes. Some of the, uh, you not infrequently talk about following the stream to the source. Yes. And um, I don't know, hearing what Jeff had just said too. I, I remember actually um, when I was young, I had, I had trouble with depression. And I remember a friend of mine saying, the only time he ever saw me really happy was when um, I bought a, I bought a copy of that book, The Perennial Philosophy, oh, by Aldous Huxley. Yeah. And to me, part of the reason was, I think that religious institutions themselves can kind of inhibit people from following the stream to the source. Uh, any religious institution, in my opinion. Yeah. But I mean, but it seemed to me in that book, and it was kind of, it was refreshing to see this wide range uh, of traditions kind of speaking to that to that practice yeah and yeah i would just though point out that as i use the expression <laughs> follow the stream to the source that's a meditation instruction yeah yeah i know so it doesn't necessarily have to do with you know the source of this or that teaching it's like it's the source of experience more like yeah but still i, I know what you mean and it is certainly true that the uh, gradual accumulation of structure uh, in, in um, teaching traditions can start to inhibit um, the experience of those who are in that tradition. And um, uh, then uh, often what happens is at some point there'll be a, a so-called, there'll be a renewal or a, a reform and the, the vitality of the um, perennial tradition will burst forth again. And then usually some people will get burned at the stake first until you know, uh, the, the uh, vitality of that uh, renewal uh, becomes established and can't be easily squashed out. But that, that's, uh, as far as, as, far as uh, um, established traditions and uh, certainly uh, bureaucracies go, that's very threatening when that happens. So then they try to you know, let's step on this and keep it quiet. But the nature of that inspiration is such that it can't be suppressed. Hence, the perennial nature of it will always come back. Or that's what I would say anyway. That's how it looks to me. Yes. Um, are you aware of the book or have you read uh, God is Not One? God is Not One. I don't think I've seen that one yet. It's, uh, I read it a few years ago. Um, I was curious because I feel like I hear the sort of perennial perspective a lot more than. Um, Another one, which the, which the book, the argument the book makes is that uh, religions are actually very different and they don't have the same uh, source. Yes, um, I have heard that. And uh, I, it was, 
it was interesting. I mean, the the way that he approaches it is describing the the problems of existence that <laughs> religions identify, and then the solutions they put forth, mm-hmm. and how different they are between religions. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, I mean, you know, kind of compelling to. <laughs> What background does this person have? I'm just curious. Do you know? I think this is a competitive religion. I I don't really remember. um, Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, well, from the theological point of view, that's very true. Yeah. But not from the experiential point of view. Yeah. And this is what gets harder and harder for, um, you know, for um, people to appreciate as the the edifice of theology gets bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier, people start to lose touch with the fact that this is actually about our inner experience, our inner life, not about all the the elaborate justifications. And Buddhism is not necessarily free of that even. Buddhist philosophy, you know, gets pretty ponderous there. So it's important to remember as the Hasidim did, you know, they came along, Judaism is like already, really ancient and they come along in the in the 18th century and say wait a minute it's about this so they dance around you know it's like and maybe and maybe that's the way to do it i don't know but the the notion that it's not about checking the boxes of the law it's about what's happening here and from that point of view i cannot agree with the author of that book uh, whose perspective sounds rather academic they say there are a lot of theologians who agree, but um, I do not. Well, we could have our little ceremony now and then some birthday cake if you like. And, um, oh, there's a question. Hokai-san. Thank you. I, you know, I appreciate this talk too, because I think there are in even the chaplaincy world, there seems to be quite a few people, at least who I talk to in the Christian tradition, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all, you know, he's all-powerful, this being. So what could he possibly need from, from us? Right. So, yeah, I don't know. And I think they might go through their whole life thinking that way. I don't know if they'll change. Um uh if you if you'll remind me i'll probably forget but i could i could like send you a text or an email with information about this guy the the magid of mezerich okay uh, this uh, hasid fellow and you might just ask casually are they familiar with this fellow's teachings Mm -hmm. and you know put them onto that and see if that really rocks their boat to discover someone saying oh no the bible is saying god leans on jacob Mm-hmm. Around, that might really uh, put the cat among the pigeons. You might say. Wait, where? So that's in the Bible. You're saying it's in. Well, uh, the, uh, the Magid refers to that chapter of Genesis. Okay. Uh, but that's just one example, and there are many. Oh, okay. The yeah. Chapter eight, but I forget the verse. But anyway, it's in there. It says. As I say, the usual translation is uh, God stood by uh, or was by or near Jacob or something. And then if you look at the Hebrew, it's actually it's deeper than that. Okay. And I guess that's also sort of why in Pure Land Buddhism, some people believe that 
that Buddha, like Amida Buddha is this perfect sort of almost like a godlike being, yes. correct? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Good. Go. Okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes. Quick comment. Uh, that when you spoke of uh, only a Buddha and a Buddha, what that brought up for me uh, is uh, I'm reading currently the Tao of Physics. Mm. And anybody with even a passing knowledge of uh, the new physics would have heard of thing. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Mm -hmm. um, it, what does an atom consist of? Mm -hmm. It consists of smaller particles, and there are smaller particles and smaller particles. So it's almost like space and form become almost meaningless. Yeah. words you don't know what you're talking about mm -hmm. at some point but the gist that i got out of this book is that everything is relational right it's more about relations than it is about the particles that are doing the relating yeah mm -hmm. and that's kind of what only buddha and a buddha means to me it's like yes it's relational it's a relationship between you your teacher what you're reading the people you meet on the street certain yeah. events in time and space mm -hmm. How you react, right. all that stuff is so. It's like the very nature of reality itself is relational. Yes, and and it's not an accident that we have the theory of relativity, because there's an important aspect of that. that that's just as you say. So there it is again. So take heart. This is how things actually are. As I, as I approach my eighth decade, God help us. I take great solace in this. Okay. Thank you for listening. <laughs>